This is Sean, and you're listening to Promise, a podcast showcasing the heroes of tomorrow. Every episode is an exploration on the idea of promise itself, whether that's the potential for success or the commitments we make to get there. I speak with exceptional, purpose-driven people on their journeys to change the world. I wrap up season four with Chris Pimble, founder of Graphics et al. Chris is on a mission to help the world build better health literacy through the Graphics et al. software platform. What is health literacy, you might ask? Well, Chris breaks it down in simple terms for us. We chat about the root causes of poor health literacy, the downstream impacts algorithms from TikTok and Google can cause, the value of co-design and building accessible software, and kicking down doors to make change happen. As the final episode of 2023, I'll also wish you the happiest of holidays and see you next year for season five. Please enjoy my discussion with Chris Pimble in the meantime. Today on the show, I welcome Chris Pimble, founder of Graphics at Al. Graphics at Al lets health professionals create accessible patient education diagrams and animations in minutes. Think about it being essentially Canva for medicine. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Really excited to have you on the show. Chris, you've got quite a varied background jumping from being a graphic artist over into being an anatomist and teaching anatomy as well and now founding a company called Graphics at All. How would you best describe yourself given this varied background and what it is you're trying to do here? I don't like the term jack of all trades, but it sort of fits in this situation. I spent the majority of my life chasing my passions, my various interests. And along the way, if I stumbled across things that I thought were interesting, I would start trying to do different little hobbies and spin-offs out of it. And when I realized the huge issue that there is currently in health literacy and trying to educate with health, obviously when I started teaching anatomy, that's when I realized that this was too big of an issue to flitter onto the next thing and let it go by the wayside. So I decided to stick with this one for a bit. Got it. Okay. Now you use the term health literacy there. For those of us who might not necessarily be health literate, how would you actually define that? Health literacy is the extent to which a person is comfortable understanding and following their healthcare instructions that are given to them by their health professional. In in the same way a person can be financially literate or they can be well read even, you can be health literate. And one of the biggest issues in Australia is that most people consider themselves to be relatively health literate. But the studies show time and time again that we actually are nowhere near as health literate as we think we are. All right. Now, uh, I can kind of guess at why this would be a problem from a societal perspective, but I would love to hear your take on it and if you had any hard numbers to back up why this actually is a problem. So the biggest issue is that if we don't understand our healthcare needs, then we are unlikely to follow relatively simple instructions that could prevent us from becoming unwell or from any current conditions we have from declining. So for example, there's two different ABS studies that were done a couple of years apart. One of them basically just asked people, how comfortable are you with your healthcare? How literate do you think you are with your healthcare needs? And it came back, you know, 80% of Australians feeling comfortable with their healthcare needs. 
this this was obviously a self-report study. Unfortunately, when there have been studies done that would actually give somebody a piece of health information and then ask them follow-on questions after that, it, we only come back at 40% health literate. So we're only half as health literate as we think we are. There's a huge amount of issues where people think they understand what they need to be doing, but in actual fact, they're incorrect. And, and of course, the problem there is if you think you understand how you're meant to take your medication or what foods you're meant to avoid or what you can and can't do while you are on a particular drug, there's a lot of situations where your medication can go awry or you can end up getting worse or ending up in hospital, even though you had thought you were following your instructions correctly, but in actual fact, you were making mistakes without even being aware of them. Okay, I can definitely see the issue here. You cited the ABS studies. Is this actually just an Australian issue? Are we uniquely poorly literate in terms of health or is this a global thing as well? Uh, absolutely not. This is 100% a global issue. There's a lot of information to back up the fact that this is one of the uh, single largest contributors to healthcare burden globally. In the US, it accounts for about $137 billion a year in lost revenue just because people aren't adhering to their medication. Only 70% of patients fill a script that a doctor gives them, and then only 40% of patients will fill the follow-up scripts or the repeats. This is a global issue. Everyone is having this problem. Right. Interesting. So if it is a global issue, what would you pinpoint as the root cause of poor health literacy? I have, I have quite an unpopular opinion. and Love my, to hear it. <laughs> my opinion is that people aren't necessarily combative or ignorant of their own health needs. They don't understand it. And a lot of that, in my opinion, comes back to the fact that all of the information that is provided to the general public about their health is created in such a high standard. It's written by university graduates. It's never written in such a way that it is accessible to the general population. And I think a lot of that comes back to the inherent ableism within the medical field. Physicians, uh, healthcare workers themselves are, are generally put in a situation where there is very little provision for accessibility within their own lives and their own education and their own training. And I think uh, a lot of that mentality carries through to how patients are treated within the healthcare system as well. Mm, interesting. Now, I'll have follow-up questions about that a little later on. My hunch, right, is that there is an element of confirmation bias for patients and people seeking healthcare as well. You know, I, I'm personally guilty of this, where if I feel a little unwell or if I notice something that's wrong with my body, the first thing that I'll do is hop on Google. And look, in reality, if I type in some set of symptoms, the first set of results will either be from Mayo Clinic or Healthline or a website like that. Yeah. And I'll make a judgment call on whether or not that is something that I need to go to the doctor about. However, that's me. I'm aware that there are also a bunch of people who perhaps continuously hunt for the pages that might tell them what they want to hear mm -hmm. as opposed to what they should be hearing. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if that is also a major contributor to poor health literacy. Yes, there was a study done in the US where they identified eight different reasons that people don't take their medication. Obviously, medication adherence is not the be-all and end-all of health literacy. It's one part of it. But yes, being scared 
is one of the reasons confirmation bias. It can be something as simple as someone in your family said you should try you know, rubbing turmeric on it instead of what the doctor said, and that seems like a far scarier option. And unfortunately, also it comes down sometimes to cost. Good healthcare prevention and good healthcare treatment can be expensive and prohibitively so for some people. So yeah, there's, it's a very, very multifaceted problem. The main defining feature across all of these reasons, whether it's confirmation bias or Dr. Google or Dr. TikTok, which is even more horrifying, the biggest thing is that all of these issues can be improved by just addressing health literacy because the more we understand about our health and the, the better we can understand our health instructions, the more we can combat all of those other contributing factors. Understood. Now, I have to admit that before meeting you, I had never heard of this as being an issue, but clearly there are many others in and around the medical space who have highlighted this to be a problem. I'm wondering if, from your perspective, is there anything aside from health literacy or maybe a component of health literacy that we are not paying enough attention to? I think there's there's two points there that I believe are incredibly important. If you think about, first of all, and, and I, I learned this fact recently from a very wonderful contact of mine who's doing a PhD project in this, people are far more likely to have five health conditions than to have one health condition. So if you think about most of the people who are going through the healthcare system have multiple issues that need addressing, and if they can't understand any part of that treatment, then it's going to exacerbate everything, right? It's going to make everything worse. So the people who need the most support with health literacy are the ones who are not only the most unwell, but also the, the biggest financial burden on the healthcare system. And the second thing is... Yeah, looking at the fact that the healthcare system is inherently not accessible to most patients, anyone who has any sort of chronic disabilities or anything like this isn't generally incredibly well catered for. You also have societal issues that really need to be thought of when you're talking about health literacy as well. Like, there's a really incredible piece that was done by Western Sydney Local Health District, where they went into the community and co-developed health literacy information with community leaders. And it actually turned out to have one of the world's highest COVID vaccination rates just because of this program. That's all they did was go into the community and, and co-develop these resources. The idea that you have to tackle this, not only looking at people who have multiple morbidities, but also looking at people who have societal differences or, or cultural differences, these things, when they're catered for, make a drastic difference in in the health outcomes for these areas and it's something that most it, it's just not focused on enough it is starting to now i should say the piece that western sydney did has sparked an incredible depth of project awareness and it's had some really incredible results but most people when they think of like health information packets like one doctors like can i just make this one thing that i can give to everyone and it's like no you absolutely cannot it won't be effective the designer in me is very pleased to hear that co-design is getting some traction and really warms my heart. Now, if I were to flip that question on its head and ask you, instead of what's not getting enough attention, what is getting more attention than it really deserves? I don't know that you could really say that anything in health is getting too much attention because everything in health is a worthwhile endeavor. Like really anything that improves the health of patients is a worthwhile endeavor. My biggest issue with 
innovation in health at the moment is that there seems to be a lot of time and resources put towards developing the next big sexy thing because people love innovating for innovation's sake. And if we come up with the next big drug or if we build this brand new machine, things like this. But the studies show that if we stopped people from getting sicker, in Queensland it's like 180,000 preventable hospitalizations a year. Just think of the the amount of hospital burden that could be dropped and the incredible cost to the healthcare system and staff burnout and things like this that could be addressed just by stopping people from getting sick in the first place or making sure they know how to take care of themselves. So I, I don't think anything is unworthy of exploration in health. I think anything designed to make patients better and to streamline processes is a great idea. I actually love the idea of AI in health. If we can get it right and if we can get the clinical governance down, then it can be amazing. But I do think people need to be okay with the idea of doing the boring work, the non-sexy work, and the work that will actually reduce burden from the healthcare system rather than focusing on how do we address it at the other end. Let's be a bit preventative rather than reactive. And definitely something that, at least my personal opinion, is that applies to health very much more so than many other industries. And you just brought up the topic of AI. I'm sure we can touch on that when we talk about the graphics at all actual product itself. Before we get to that, what I'd love to hear is a little bit more about you as your background, how you've come to found this company. We did allude to it a little bit at the start. How did you actually make the jump, firstly, from being a graphic artist and then shifting into anatomy? Aside from anatomical diagrams, seems totally polar opposite types of careers. And then, again, making the jump into founding the company. So it's actually, it does sound like they're completely disjointed, but there's actually a step in between graphic artist and anatomist, and that was product developer. So I've been doing graphic art since I was 13. My mum's a graphic artist. She taught me. I started hustling when I was like just a little thing. I was still like in high school. I was a graphic artist for a really long time, and then I actually became a product developer for government organizations, both nationally and internationally, developing products for law enforcement and fire and rescue and things like this. And my job was to not only design products that fit the extremes that the person would be theoretically going under incredibly well, moved with the body, breathed in in fancy ways, anything to make it more usable. But that was half of my job. The other half was actually taking very, very complex tender specification documents and translating it down into two pages of diagrams with arrows and numbers for offshore manufacture. Because we never knew where it was going to get manufactured. We just knew it was going to get manufactured. And no matter who was looking at that, that manufacturing packet had to be able to understand it. That was my pre-anatomy life. And then my husband had a rather nasty work accident. And we completely upended our lives. We moved back to Queensland. During helping my husband go through rehab, I realized that my previous interest in anatomy that I had brought to my product developer role was really, really strong. And I had just decided that I was going to go back to uni on a whim was like, yeah, I'm going to sign up to uni. I went to UQ. I did my biomed degree and I was going to be a doctor and got completely sidetracked during my honors when I first started tutoring. And I realized that this was an issue. So it does seem like the two different careers are completely disjointed, but actually it was quite logical steps in this direction to lead me to realize that this was something that Manufacturing has always and forever relied on visual education to get manufacturing. You know, when you've got a $50 million tender going out, you don't want to get it back and have pockets the wrong size or something. So 
it's always been purely visual, accessible by anyone, regardless of literacy levels. We've just never extended that into health. And because I had lived in both worlds, I realized that it just needed to be here and I didn't understand why it wasn't here yet. So that's what sort of got me up to the company. And then what got me to start the company was I did what any first-time founder does and I registered a, a clever business name and printed 2,000 business cards and went back into the university and told my supervisor that I was starting a graphic arts studio that would create bespoke life science-focused visual aids for teaching and said that if she ever needed any work done, we could help out on projects and you know, she could pay for them out of her research budget. And she laughed in my face and um, said, yeah, what, what budget? And that's when I realized that the other big part of why this has never been solved is because there's very little funding for health education and health literacy. So, you know, Canva is such a incredibly viable and tried and tested business method. And when everyone in health needs access to the exact same resources and rather than recreating it over and over again, we can actually crowdsource it and get everybody working from the same content that's been designed once by a specialist team. It just made sense. So was the light bulb moment that got you to start the company in the form that it is now, was that when your contact at the university said that there wasn't funding to actually pay for your services? Or, or was it earlier on in the journey when you thought, oh, well, there is a glaring problem here and I need to solve it? No, I think it was, so it came in two parts. So I was like, there's a problem here. We can solve it. We'll get together and we'll draw the assets. But it's not viable. It's not repeatable. And it wasn't until my supervisor was just very honest about the fact that there is no money put aside for anything like this. Health moves too quickly. Designs would need to be evolved and adapted like every six months. It's just not viable. And I think I, I went home and I looked at the stack of business cards and went, well, oh, okay, what now? still was adamant that there had to be a solution to it, that it, it couldn't be something that is just not addressable. And yeah, I, I honestly couldn't tell you when the actual light bulb moment of using a subscription model came up, but I think it came out of a necessity of just wanting to help. I had put together a team with some really incredible skills and we'd already tried and tested it. We did all of the figures for my projects while I was at university and it, it worked. It was just these figures when they're clean and clear, they just worked. So it was really just how could we get that to as many people as possible. Got it. And with your little team that you've assembled, how did you get other people on board with your mission actually? Because I understand the team that you have have also quite diverse backgrounds themselves. And on top of that, you also work with uh, a bunch of subcontractors at the moment as well. Yeah, incredibly diverse team with amazing skills. I honestly am not quite sure how I managed to put them together because we bootstrapped it to MVP. We were just slugging away at it for about three and a half years before we even had a product to sell. I think for the most part, Everybody's had that horrible experience in not really understanding what they're meant to be doing and looking at three or four pages of wall-to-wall -wall text in PDF form and just being like, I, I don't understand any of this. So most people can resonate with the problem I'm trying to solve. But honestly, I think it, it was luck. It was right time at the right place. The team, I knew them all directly or indirectly through some really great contacts. The artists came together around our art director, they all went to university together. They're all incredibly talented, far more talented than I ever was at creating amazing art pieces. 
And then when it came time to find the researchers, I was at university. I had a couple of friends who were going through with me who liked the idea and thought it'd be great. Yeah, it's interesting how we haven't ever had a problem finding incredibly talented people to join us. It's really great. I think that might speak to the value of your mission in the end. Okay, now we've learned a little bit about the problem space that you're solving. We learned a little bit about yourself and how you're applying yourself to the problem. Let's talk about the solution. Let's talk about graphics at all. We've kind of touched on it a little bit here and there. I would love for you to break it down. How does it work? And who is this really for? Yeah, so it's always easy describing it to people who have used Canva, but let's assume you don't know what Canva is. It's essentially a graphic art program that gives you a blank board or a template from which you can work. And then we have a library of over 15,000 scientifically accurate digital assets. And some of these are static, some of them are animated, and you basically just drag and drop them onto a blank page, put in some text, put in some arrows, and then you're done. The great thing is that we've done the hard work for you. So all of our assets were created by our team of artists and researchers working together. And we follow special education principles to make sure that all of the visual outputs are as accessible as possible. So we take into account things like colorblindness, things like dyslexia, anything along the lines of visual processing issues. And the idea is that you can take a six-page medication information document, which is really horrible wall-to-wall text. It's very, very difficult to understand. And you can turn it into a one-page little picture with a couple of arrows and lines and numbers. And it's very accessible. And the whole process takes about 15 minutes. Wow. All right. Now, there's a couple of questions I have spinning out of that. Firstly, I'm guessing purely because the space that you're playing in is a super highly regulated industry, any instruction set that gets provided to a customer or a patient needs to have some level of scientific vetting. And now I know you said that these graphics are co-created with professionals. Do they actually need to be referenced in any way? Yes, absolutely. So we provide citations. for. So we actually follow scientific methodology with our citations. So if you were to write a proper scientific paper and submit it, there are rules about what has to be cited within that. We follow those rules when we create these assets. So if there has to be citations, we will provide them and we make sure that we're using the highest possible quality of references to create these assets. Got it. Okay. Now, second question following up from that is, how does this actually compare with the existing method of producing these graphics? So the existing method is varied and it depends on where you're from and what your funding would be like. So you've got, there's sort of two ends of the scale here. The first end is it's a administrator who is at a computer using Word and maybe Google images to try and put something together, inherently problematic because technically, if you take an image of Google images and you put it into a document and then you send that document to patients, you are actually publishing. So more often than not, a lot of these things are breaking copyright law, as well as they're generally pretty messy. Studies have shown that messy visuals are actually worse than no visuals. So you're actually better off not using anything if you can't find the right type of visual support. And then you've also got the other extreme, which is pharma companies and things like this that can afford to pay $100,000 to a marketing company to create them bespoke 
packets of information with really beautiful visuals and diagrams. We're not targeting either of those. So if you desperately do not have the money to pay for a subscription, there are still people who just prefer to put it together themselves in Word. That's great. We also are never going to compete with the big marketing firms who do bespoke work because that's not where we're helping. They don't need help. They've got the money. They don't need the help. The difference is that our platform is incredibly flexible. You can go in and you can update any of your medication information as the new research comes out and is updated in real time. And the process, you don't have to worry about copyright infringement. You don't have to worry about scientific accuracy. We're even in the process of building out now a massive templates library. So we've got a heap of work that we've done for other customers. And anytime we do that, that goes in so everyone can access it. We're trying to crowdsource this content so it doesn't need to be continuously remade over and over again. That makes a lot of sense. One thing that you brought up in a previous answer was the accessibility of the output. And you mentioned a few things around dyslexia and color. What I'm curious about is, does that also apply to digital accessibility? So for example, if I require the use of a screen reader, would I also be able to access what looks like a highly visual output? So we're in the process of building that out now. At this point in time, we focus mainly on visual supported learning. So we're trying to target the other 70% of the population. Although we are in the process now of working out how we can also support blind and low vision healthcare consumers. I'm in a very privileged situation where one of my close friends is actually probably one of the market leaders in blind and low vision technology in a completely different space, but they have a really incredible team of experts around that area, and we will be stepping into that area relatively soon. Our goal is to get to the stage where we can support just about every accessibility need that a patient might have. What a wonderful initiative. I'm I can't wait to see or hear what that might look like in the near future. But talking about the future, we did briefly talk about AI and healthcare. How would you actually think about using it within graphics at all? We actually have a really great plan for our AI development. So obviously, most people are aware that generative AI is a thing that's out there. The unfortunate news is that at this stage, generative AI cannot replace what we do. Anyone who's familiar with gaming or has seen Polar Express knows about the uncanny valley and how it's very difficult to create digital outputs that resemble human likeness without them being creepy. And we have been playing with AI quite a bit. So our first step with AI is to actually replace the manual onboarding system that that we have to take uh, customers through using it as a translation tool rather than a generation tool. But we are also going to be developing our generative AI, which is a long-term goal, but definitely necessary because health is moving at such a speed that although we are able to crowdsource our needs and we can keep track of what the industry is doing based on the requests that we get, we would like to be able to do more. So I think AI has a fantastic place in automating a lot of the mundane tasks that my team currently does. Okay, now if somebody was to hop on the Graphics at All website, graphicsatall.com, I'll stick that in the show notes, they might see that there's links to a variety of different kinds of products, uh, if you can call them that, perhaps their features instead. So for example, I might be able to click through to looking at how you can support clinical trial comms or device usage or research visuals specifically. Are there any differences between 
how people might use graphics at all for these different tasks? And if so, how would you actually cater for them? Funnily enough, it's the exact same. It's it's only the one software. We have one software, one library. It really comes down to what the customer needs the output for. And and the biggest issue is that health is so compartmentalized that everybody speaks a different language. So if you're talking to a life science laboratory, for example, and we're talking about how you can create staff training in an accessible way, they would call the output a picture process map. It's basic. It is a diagram. It's a diagram of a procedure. You talk to people who work in clinical trials and they want patient or participant engagement collateral. It is a diagram. If you're talking to a health professional and they need health literacy support or patient education, it's a diagram. So essentially, basically rewriting the exact same features over and over again on our site, speaking to our different consumer sectors and their particular language. Because one of the things that we learned very early on is everybody needs the same content. You can use a syringe in a lab, you can use it on a patient, you can use it in research, you can use it in a clinical trial. It's the same syringe. We essentially have the same outputs. It's got more to do uh, with who internally in my team you would get referred to because we have medical researchers, we have lab researchers, we have people who work with clinical trials. So understanding everybody's different languages, but they all need the same tool. It's just the one tool. Do you think you would ever see a future where you could help everybody speak the same language? (laughs) Uh, No, it'll never happen because even if you say, can't we just remove language and use just visuals, it's restrictive to blind and low vision people. So we're never going to be able to use the same language and aiming to create universal answers to a problem always overtly restricts the marginalized. It always further marginalizes people. It's one of the reasons we like the flexibility of this and the idea of doing the community co-development and building 20 different ways to visualize the same thing. It's all part of education framework called universal design for learning. It's the idea that you need to represent information in multiple ways because everybody will resonate with a different representation of the same information. I definitely know some people who would be very interested in hearing you speak more about that. Okay, so we've talked a lot about the different segments of healthcare that Graphics et al. could be applied to. What about outside of healthcare? Do you think there's other applications that this could be used for? 100% there's other applications this could be used for. I mean, if you think about it, this is Canva. Canva is used as a general design tool. There's always going to be additional markets or verticals that could be helped with this tool. We've already been asked if we can start stepping into like engineering spaces or things like this. It's not that we can't, we absolutely can. And in the future, there may be capacity to to expand into different verticals, but health is such a large, not just health, I should specify, it's life science, because we also work with laboratories and research groups and clinical trials. Life science is such a massive, massive sector that I, at this stage, would be doing it an injustice if I started trying to expand into other verticals. We have partners who are in other verticals. There may be space to work with them to build collaborations to help service other verticals. But at this stage, really, while it is applicable to most sectors, we are focusing in health and life science. That makes a lot of sense. Now, one thing that I'd love to hear you expand upon is, I guess, the outcomes of having better health literacy or having better uh, instruction sets for health literacy. I could see this being very attractive to, say, insurers of hospitals or pharmaceutical companies, for example. 
but that's me looking at it with my business hat on. I would love to hear if you see the same thing, if you've had any conversations in this space, what are the insurance implications around a product like Graphics et al.? Yeah, there is in the US. I have had conversations with people in the US who work very closely with insurance agencies and pharma companies as well. And you are correct. There's a huge opportunity there to lower their ongoing costs and expenses if they can find ways to stop patients from ending up needing treatment where it could have been avoided. That's generally falls under the banner of preventative care. And up until quite recently, mostly that was looking at lifestyle changes and potentially getting certain health conditions under control or controlled with medication to stop them from declining. But it's only recently, in Australia, only in the last six months, internationally in, in the US, maybe only in the last couple of years, that they've really identified the fact that health literacy is just such an important factor to declining health and increased healthcare risks. It's an area that we are looking at helping out with. We, we've had this conversation before where the idea that in the US they are solving a lot of very large problems for mainly for profit reasons. There's also organisations in the UK that are trying to do the same and it's more of a national program to try and improve patient engagement. All of these sorts of areas are very interested in getting access to the software and it's really just about when you start looking at the fact that everything really should be co-developed to get the best possible outcome and we're trying to create things to be as accessibly as possible, I am trying to pick which markets we enter first to make sure that we can do them justice. Part of our expansion plans for the next 18 months is actually setting up a footprint in the UK and in the US, and then we'll be able to really focus in on those markets and start co-developing content that they specifically will need and will like having access to. But yes, there, there's a lot. Of, it's not just insurance agencies and pharma. There's a lot of quite large health institutions in the US as well that are looking at this as a very, very real solve to a huge problem that they're currently facing. Now, I have another question that's kind of related to that, which is it's all well and good to actually produce the graphics. But unless you're actually taking the time to co-design with every single target end user that you might be looking to impact, what do you actually go about building that trust? Because as we spoke about it before, Dr. Google, Dr. TikTok, Dr. Anything Internet, Social Media is way more accessible. How do you actually see your product building trust when it's in use as opposed to when you're actually designing the graphics themselves? It's a very real problem, especially because used correctly, patients will never see our software. They will only ever see the output. Again, referring back to Western Sydney and the program they did, they developed something called the 4M model that speaks really to, as you said, building trust in the community to influence a particular health outcome. And one of the parts of that is accepting the fact that you as an outsider in a community are never going to be able to step in and be a trusted authority on anything and focusing more on building partnerships with the people who are already in that community and are already trusted advocates within the community. And that's something that we have been trying to do. Obviously, it's very early days and it's very small scale at this stage, but for our purposes, it is better building a partnership with an existing trusted authority in an area and then helping them to attain that health outcome or that health literacy piece that they need 
rather than us trying to put our hands up and say, look at us, we know, we're smart, follow us, do what we say. Because at the end of the day, we aren't experts in medicine and health. We're experts in accessible education in life science. We are always working with partners within the health system who are the experts. And then we will be continuing that into the community and, yeah, leveraging the partnerships to build trust in that way. All right. Okay. My last question about the product as a whole is who your customers actually are. So from an external perspective, it looks like really large, slow-moving organizations like a state health body or even a federal health body. And we did talk about pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies as well. It's kind of a trope that all of these organizations have really long sales cycles. How do you actually plan on reaching the right people in in the space and successfully selling your product? First of all, that is 100% true. (laughs) The, The larger public health organizations, they are slow. They move slowly. And it's not through any other reason than they just, it. that is the internal processes that happen even once you have a incredibly passionate advocate who's desperately trying to get it into the organization it might still take six months nine months one of the longest sales cycles we've had at the moment that still is only just about to close in the new year we're going on about 13 months so yeah it does take a long time for public health the great news is private health moves a lot faster There's a lot of private health organizations who need the same content for the same reason. They are going to use it in a very similar fashion and they generally are a lot less risk averse and a lot more quick to action deals. We've had contracts turn around in two days from first meeting. When you find that right partner and you are solving the right problem, it can move incredibly fast. And that's been our sort of go-to-market strategy is we have a lot of these very large but very slow moving contracts that are still working through and are still moving forward like they are happening but the biggest challenge we had to overcome in this space specifically in the public sector is that because we're a brand new product nothing like this exists on the market for this sector there isn't a budget line item somewhere they don't have x amount of money set into the budget every year for flexible health literacy software that it it, because it doesn't exist so what we're finding with a lot of our our public customers is that they are needing to essentially budget it in for the following year because they otherwise had no capacity to action the contract and so that's what we do we leverage off making sure that the larger private contracts are always being taken care of and we're always bringing in new ones but then you've got your med tech companies and your private health organizations that can move a lot faster and can help to yeah pay the bills until the the other contracts come through but i mean i honestly i honestly could say that at this point that the largest contracts that we have are both in public and private there's not one that's worth more than the other all right Thank you so much for sharing well a, a lot about the industry and the product itself. I, I feel like I've learned a lot and it's fantastic for me personally because I love learning. But what I'd like to know is the future seems pretty bright for graphics at all. I'm curious what your next steps are in the immediate future. We have a lot of really incredible stuff happening at the moment. We're building out our AI, as I said, which is absolutely amazing. And that will overcome our last real barrier to rapid scale. We're doing a raise at the moment with some really amazing industry partners. 
and we're onboarding some really incredible customers, which I can't, it's it's really funny whenever I talk about stuff like this, I have to be incredibly vague because obviously the customers I'm dealing with, there's quite heavy privacy in place, but um, we're talking global reach, we're talking uh, third world relief, disaster support, clinics and hospitals around the world. It's amazing what we're going to be helping out with pretty soon. Wonderful. And perhaps then my next question is a little bit of a moot point, but given the list of people that you're probably already working with by now, are there any dream organizations that you'd want to partner with and you haven't yet? Oh, look, within Australia, we've got some really incredible support already. We're now being recognized as like the industry leader in accessible health literacy and and some of the, the partnerships we have now in Australia are amazing. You know, you've got the vanity type customers in the US like Mayo Clinic or things like that. But even those, we've got contacts at the Mayo Clinic. These are all things that are in the works. Yeah, it would be incredible to have some of those. I don't know. That's an an interesting question. I haven't really thought about it before. Sounds like you have everybody sewn up already. (laughs) Health is such a slow moving thing that honestly, most of these things could take five or 10 years to come out. But yeah, something amazing. As you said, Dr. Google, it's three o'clock in the morning. You go and you type your symptoms into Google because you've got a migraine or something and it pops up Mayo Clinic and then maybe one of our diagrams are there in the information packet. That would be incredible. That would be amazing. Start combating Dr. TikTok one diagram at a time. Bit by bit. All right. My last question for this section, as usual, is do you think there's any additional skills that you might need as you plot your next few steps? Always. Always. I am I am constantly finding that I am, am um, in learning mode. I think anybody who isn't in learning mode when they're running a company is maybe a little bit delusional or is far smarter than myself. But there's things that, you know, I don't I don't know how to plan an exit strategy. I don't know how to do that sort of like global marketing of a company like how do you do that that's that's complicated stuff i'm always touching base with some truly incredible advisors in this company i've been very very fortunate that some of the people who've been willing to listen to my primal screams at 2am and and help me out with different problems have been incredibly talented and very very knowledgeable in the sector but yeah I'm always needing to learn new things I feel like every week I'm googling different things that I had no idea what it was so always I don't know how to build an AI that's interesting I don't have a tech background so I'm learning a lot of this on the fly well I hope your AI literacy matches your uh, health literacy <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't know about that we will see but again I have some really incredible people helping me with the AI it all just looks like magic to me I just Hey, is it possible to make it do this? Yeah, probably. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and maybe speaking of magic, one of my traditional closing questions is, if everything goes right for you, what does the world look like? One of the things I'm most excited about, and this kind of touches back on another question that you asked me before, you know, what's coming up on the horizon? One of the things I'm most excited about is that we're now being asked about how legislation should be changed. So wave the magic wand, everything goes great. What does it look like? I don't ever want to hear that somebody's grandma ended up in hospital because they didn't understand that they couldn't take medication A with coffee first thing in the morning. The fact that there are industries in this world, most of them, in fact, that are so much more accessible than health, that is a joke to me. We are 
at this stage now where we're finally starting to realize what a problem this is and what this is a really causing an issue and the fact that the issue needs to be solved on the health industry side. This can't be on patients because there's too much misinformation out there. There's too much outside pressure, too much influence. If health is the authority on what is the best way to look after yourself, then we need to be accessible. And if everything goes right, and and this is something that's in the works now, the standards that every hospital and clinic in Australia has to adhere to will be changed. Providing accessible health literacy will be mandatory. And if your patient doesn't understand what's going on, it's because you didn't equip them well enough. Really, that's what needs to happen. It's what's happening. And really, that's my idea of, of the perfect outcome for all of this is that nobody is sitting there trying to figure out how to read the instructions at two o'clock in the morning because they're trying to take their medication and they don't know what they're meant to do. Wonderful. Sounds like there's a, a lot of stuff in the works for you. And perhaps this might go back to the fact that you feel like you constantly need to learn things. But what do you think you personally need to do to help get us to that health literate world? I need to keep being possibly the most annoying person in health tech at the moment, which I am and I am comfortable doing. I need to keep stamping my feet and jumping up and down and fighting on behalf of patients everywhere who don't understand what they're meant to be doing, but also on behalf of burnt out frontline staff who are constantly seeing the same representations in hospitals, same people coming in for the same issues and desperately need help. They need a solution that is not just work harder. We can reduce hospital burden. We can make all of this better. And I'm the person who is jumping up and down and waving the flag. Myself and a couple of really incredibly passionate health literacy advocates around Australia, we're just becoming the most annoying people in Australia. We are kicking down doors and ranting at anyone who will listen to tell them that we can make everyone's lives easier, staff and patients, just by improving health literacy. It is a simple fix. Wonderful. Busting down doors to make a point. What a wonderful way to finish the show. Chris, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out this afternoon. The last thing I'll get you to do is to share any social media or contact info in case people like the sound of what you're doing and want to get in touch. Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, Chris Pimble, and we have our website, graphicsetal.com. And that's graphics, E-T-A-L, not at L, et al, which is a little bit difficult sometimes. But apart from that, I'm a bit of a Luddite. We don't have many social media presences at the moment. But yeah, anybody who wants to get in touch and learn about how they can be more accessible in the education content, I'm always, I'm always happy to rant and rave and fight the good fight. Wonderful. Chris, thank you once again. You're more than welcome. That's it for today's episode of Promise. Be sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Do you think you or someone you know would have ideas worth sharing? Send me an email to sean at promise.fm. Otherwise, subscribe and stay tuned to learn from tomorrow's heroes and what we've got is promise.